0: This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival...
1: It's right to be skeptical of new um, at, at the level and the stake of, you know, what a lot of the projects that,
2: you know, we're all involved in are. that many times control systems actually control people. Google is really your friend. And a lot of these online courses are your friend in such a way that you could never have accomplished the same thing with such speed if you had a much more limited uh, set of resources available to you, like, for instance, a closed forum that might maybe only has, what, 500 members? To be an effective integrator and consultant, no matter which technologies you're using, get above the surface of all of that. Focus on what the actual outcomes are, and then choose your tools based
0: on those, instead of being tied down into one box. Greetings, everyone in AV lands. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray, and today we have two guests on the show both experienced in the world of AV and software. And along with a great team, they've taken that experience to form Control Envy. Control Envy is an automation control and monitoring platform that takes a software first approach to provide custom solution that really are beautiful. The user interfaces are just gorgeous and it is also full of insights and data. Control Envy runs on many platforms and it ticks all the boxes of being a software defined solution. So please welcome to the show, Wes Hatchett, CEO, and Nick Mellon, VP of Customer Success at Control NV. Nick and Wes, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thank you. glad to be here, Patrick. Thanks a lot, Patrick.
0: Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to talk with me tonight. It's nighttime here, afternoon there. Is there anything about that introduction that you guys would care to correct or expand upon?
1: Well, I think it was great. Um, I'm listening, I'm looking forward to listening to that one back, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and I like, you know, of course we've known each other for a while. And so it's been neat to, um, be able to, to let you see more and more of what we've been doing and, and you know, how that's really materialized into a complete system. And like you said, really focused on the data aspect of, um, getting, getting behind more than just uh, being the touch panel, you know, as far as how we look at programming and what we're providing.
0: Yeah, correct. So we'll get more into the solution in a few minutes. First, I'd like to hear a little more about your background. So I have some stock questions that I like to ask people and uh, I'll split them up between you. So Wes, how did you get started in AV? How did you wind up in this crazy business?
1: My first job in AV was at Hi-Fi Buys, uh, which was a tweeter company. So I was doing sales essentially my first year out of high school. Wanted to take a year off before college and just get a, you know, save a little money, and, which ended up being spent on guitars. And I think that interest in music and everything uh, in the music business, lots of it just drove me to uh, that first job in, at Hi Fi Buys and um, through some. Uh, friends and just other, you know, other things of getting into that world. It was several years later, not too much later, but a few years later that I really became aware of everything that was
0: happening around control systems and got going in that direction. Interesting. You are the third guest to be a guitar player. So uh, including myself, that's four guitar players that have been on this short lived show so far. Um, Watch out guitar players. You might wind up with a career in AV. Um, Yeah, or to the wise we're an industry of (laughs) failed (laughs) musicians Or smart musicians one way or the other Um, nick tell me about your most successful project in av and and what made it rewarding for you Oh man, great question
2: um, well my background in av started Um uh, from the construction path strangely. Um, and then from general construction. I came up through doing alarm systems and ended up, because of that, working on some uh, very high-profile security projects, and uh, was introduced to uh, a project that was going to have uh, Crestron integration, uh, but they really wanted to make sure that the interface was really usable. And so it was uh, a great joy to basically be able to be involved in the scoping and design of, of the entire infrastructure, but then knowing that I got to have creative control over Um, how the interface would uh, eventually end up being used. And uh, that project was uh, 20 plus zones of audio and video, a couple of different media rooms, uh, 15 plus touch panels, and um, uh, has been running successfully with only a couple of minor glitches for 10 plus years now. Um, So I look back on that one and think about all of the, the, the pains and, and difficulties that go into designing interfaces when you have to deal with bitmaps and, and whatnot instead of you know the web development tools that we have now. And I think the young guns don't realize how easy they have it <laughs> compared to what we dealt with in years prior. So, But a lot of good memories came out yeah. of those. I'm not sure if you bring up a lot of memories for me with the bitmaps.
1: And I'm not sure if it was easier. I think that's a, a funny word we were certainly, there was a, a tighter limitation by far on what we were able to do. Um, so the methods the methods were very old school. I'll give you that.
0: Definitely. Great point. Great point. Yeah. HTML5 is certainly not easy. Dealing with CSS can, uh, can drive you crazy for sure. But um, of course, you have really great looking graphics that go along with it and uh, a lot more possibilities that you could do. So there's always that that give and take that uh, you get more power, more responsibility, and easy. I love your respect of that word, yeah, Wes. Whenever somebody tells me something easy, I I tend to get a little bit afraid. <laughs> so tell me, guys, what separates, what differenti- differentiates control envy from other control solutions? In a nutshell, if you could do that,
1: you first, Wes.
0: Yeah, um,
1: well, I think, like you said, it's it's hardware agnostic. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that we don't focus only on one platform. So whereas, you know, even our work in Raspberry Pi right now we have existing in a couple of different languages. And um, I think being at a philosophical level, really open to having our concept of what the system is and letting the hardware landscape evolve, you know, as we know it will. And so Um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of hardware, hardware and digital signage, all kinds of places that we really, um, have an embedded approach, you know, to our mission of what we want to do. And that goes along with our open source license, which I think is, um, the other big part of what makes us different is that not only are we, you know, actively engineering and looking at the architecture of so many hardware platforms, but we're open source while doing it and, uh, that enables us to build a wide network of partners approaching different kinds of systems in different ways
0: so you bring up open source and there can be a lot of confusion around those two words. so can you give me like just a brief a really brief definition of what open source means to you?
1: Yeah uh, what it means to me is that I have access um, not only to the, uh, well, I guess coming from the AV perspective, you know, we, we all talk a lot about source code and having the source code to our projects. And as far as it related to say a Crestron project, having your source code, if you had all of it, graphics and everything else, you, uh, you were able to change whatever that project was. Um, what it means to control Envy is that not only are you able to change what a project is, but we also recognize in this new era that you need the ability to change what the actual product engine behind it is all the way down to workflow um, in terms of how these projects are designed and deployed and, and tied together. So, um, so I, I was gonna say, so I would, to me, it it means that I have access to everything necessary to, to make the solution work uh, for my use case is, is the practical application. I think of why open source is important. And there's also a transparency side that gets into security. And there's of course, a lot of, a lot of ways you can expound on that. Um, but I think what's most important to me is that I know the solution can never, uh, change in a way that I don't want because I could always develop on what I'm already comfortable with.
0: So it helps you to remain agile and and flexible. Um, you kind of hinted towards this that it really is a huge topic, open source. There are many different uh, legs of that ox- octopus that you could get into about the benefits of it. Um, but in the end, it basically just lets you view the source code and um, in, in in this case, even change it if you need to. So maybe if you could talk briefly about licensing and and how that affects open source
1: Well, I think in open source, what you primarily uh, what you see the large um, open source based companies selling at at a license level really is their support, Um, their support as well, you know, including things like SLAs behind uh, performance of certain systems. And that's how we look at, um, you know, through our partner network and in the projects that we work on, it's, it's really that the, um, the software license, you know, that you are, purchasing is effectively purchasing uh, our official support and and, uh, the ability to stand behind your deployment.
0: Excellent. So we've got open source, we covered a bit, and now you mentioned SLAs, and that kind of gets more into the the business aspect of open source. So how you make money with open source. Can you tell us again, in, in a nutshell, this is a huge subject as well, But uh, what is an SLA? How could it apply to us in AV? Nick, you feel like fielding that?
2: Yeah. (laughs) So SLA is uh, yet another acronym. And I think that should be a term, yet another acronym for uh, service level agreements. And service level agreements are very familiar to enterprise purchasers of uh, software solutions. And even uh, open source uh, operating systems like uh, Linux are produced with SLAs as an option that you can purchase from Red Hat or others. And what a service level agreement means is effectively that as a business, you can rely upon a certain level of uptime and functionality from the subscription that you're maintaining. And if those uh, agreements are ever compromised in any such way that there's a a form of compensation that, that you're entitled to as the um, uh, receiver of the SLA, so th- the benefit is that open source can continue to develop, um, but the software can pro- be provided to you as a service instead of you having to have all of those developers on staff in order to modify the open source tools in the way that you see fit. One of the drawbacks to the open source environment in Linux is that uh, in many times it's a, here's a whole bunch of code and tools and do with it what you will. Um, And it's a bit of, uh, you're left to your own devices. Uh, Companies that can modify open source software to the point where they can provide a stable SLA help you to bridge that gap in between open source and standard commercial software.
0: Great explanation. So can you give me a, a practical application that, that I, as a, a, an AV guy, would understand?
2: Well, let's think about, for instance, um, Zoom meetings. Are uh, I don't know what Zoom's uh, current SLA practices are, but if you th- think about Zoom as something that AV uh, companies are becoming familiar with, it's a service. It lives in a cloud. It ties into um, your hardware and the systems that you may have in an integration project. And yet that software does not necessarily live inside the integration itself, but it's a service that has to stay up constantly, has to be reliable and has to be available whenever your meeting is kicked off in your room. The implications of Zoom's cloud service going down mean that suddenly your video conferencing system itself is compromised by a missing service. So in that context, an SLA around a hosted service such as Zoom would ensure that you as a business never experience the implications of that downtime. And if you do, there's compensation for it.
0: And could this apply really to the hardware, to the TV not turning on and things like that?
2: Boy, in that case, that's uh, no. There's no SLAs I'm aware of that go down to that level. But
0: Right, but something like uh, data collection and monitoring and things like that, you could provide some sort of a guarantee yeah. that, that things will be available. Yeah. Okay, so we have started working on a project together And one of the things that uh, came up was in the very beginning of the process, uh, Nick, you were talking about user stories. Can you uh, tell us a little more about your ideas on user stories and how to communicate the expectations of a project?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, to answer that, I'll go back a little bit to the question that you asked Wes. And that was, what are the most exciting things to you about, for instance, having Control Envy available as a tool um, in your toolbox? Um, for me, what that comes down to is it being such an open platform that all opportunities are still on the table when you're having a conversation with someone about what they're trying to achieve. And what that leads to is instead of approaching projects or conversations with a, with a number of technical constraints, like we have to use this hardware and there's already um, X amount of uh, devices that have already been determined and now I just need a price. You can back up from that conversation to the level that consultants typically approach it. And at that level, you're not talking about those implementation details. You're talking about what's the final outcome? What's the end result that we want to achieve by even taking on this project? And how does that end result meet the needs not only of the business that you're servicing as a client, but of your own business? And so that's where user stories come in. They're a way to define in such a way that designers and developers can understand a a set language around what the outcome is that they're trying to achieve. And the stories are written from the perspective of the final user. And the final user might be uh, somebody of, of different flavors. Like for instance, if you're looking at a remote service management dashboard or a monitoring platform, The user in that case might not necessarily be the same user that's touching a a interface inside of a boardroom. One person might be monitoring the health of a system, the other person might be actually using the system. So those are two different users. And the typical language around a user story is actually a very simple sentence. It's as a user, I want to do X so that I can accomplish Y. And using that framework, you can have discussions with businesses or even with end users, such as uh, estate homeowners, to discuss with them what they're actually trying to accomplish so that you can lay out those goals without having to get down into the weeds. And when you have a platform as open as Control Envy, that becomes a huge benefit because the options available to you are so broad that if you started by trying to lay out all options, you would never be finished. So instead, you lay out what is it that's uh, A person considers to be successful or desirable and then you can codify that and work backwards to solutions that will fit
0: good stuff. I like that equation that x y z equation of uh, Of making a framework so so that you know where you're going This has come up several times on the show already. Obviously experience is a big buzzword lately um, But it's really important. It's the right way to approach the project and like you were saying, there are so many possibilities out there, especially when you look at more open platforms and commodity hardware. The, the possibilities really are endless, but you don't need to do everything. You just need to do a specific set of tasks. So once you have this user story hammered out and everybody agrees on who the players are and, and what, who the users are and, and what their goals are, what are the next steps? What would a typical project look like?
2: Wes, do you want to take a stab?
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think they, a lot of what we're doing on the data side and the, you know, the insight side of room usage and, and those statistics integration with building systems um, would typically be in an office environment um, where that side of, of the product is, you know, really a, a big part of it. And of course, that's like uh, you saw us at ISE and the smart building wing. And that was very much the uh, type of demonstration, you know, that that we had set up there. was. So I think we very strongly picture our system um, and, you know, a lot of the projects that we work in, in the smart building um, arena. Um, but what we've also found, and uh, Nick is, has just started working on a project in that's you uh, very similar in feel, but a different in result being the amenities spaces in an MDU and finding that you know a lot of those same needs again it really depends on who which person in the user story you're talking about. So like Nick referenced, the uh, what the end users in either case care about is different than facilities managers or, or building staff but uh, they share those things in common. Um, and even the idea in those spaces where you could you could paint the amenity space or the hospitality space uh, traditionally, I think a little more in the residential direction. Uh, though we've been having conversations where they want to have easy access to Skype so that people can you know communicate around the world. So I'm I'm seeing a, a blur there uh, now even between the commercial and quote, the residential side, where for a lot of people that are interacting with multiple systems in the office, at home, where they hang out, um, things like access to a consistent calendar and having information even at that level with scheduling, I think can apply in a lot of markets
0: really interesting take on it obviously the technology that we use at home skype and facetime and things like that are very similar to the things you'll use at work zoom or anything like that uh skype again shows up at work as well but i like the way you tie that back to even your calendar um because your schedule is your schedule right it doesn't matter if you're at work or you're at home if you have to be someplace you have to be someplace so that's a uh, an interesting spot where some more integration could could even take place so getting our hands dirty with control MV. what 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 do i need to do right so so i'm a i'm an av integrator maybe i'm a programmer what what happens once everything is hammered out we know what we know what we need to do we know what equipment is in the project what happens next
1: um typically what we'll do with a new Partner. So, you know, if it's our first time working together, and we've we've looked at a project that looks like it's a great fit, and you know, gone through that process, established budgets, and all of that, um, part of that will be determining what what role, um, and this is partly determined by skill sets. But you know, what role do you want to play? Not only in this first project, but in the evolution of of where you want to go with this, because we do have some partners who. Are primarily on the uh, project management and design side and don't necessarily have the um, desire to get their hands dirty, as you said, with respect to, say, the software. So we actually offer software development as well in our solutions group. And so, working with a partner, um, we can not only through ourselves, but then also through other development partners. put that together so that it, so that everyone can play the, the role that they want to play. So that's the first thing is we're not, it's not just a, a software product where the only people working with us are programmers. Um, of course, given the model and, and uh, you know, the market of where we come from, obviously we work with a lot of programmers too. And that question then becomes, which languages are you proficient in? And that, has, you know, is also determined by the architecture of what is being deployed. Um, so if we're doing a Crestron system, for example, um, that's going to be architected uh, in a certain way and, and where Control Envy fits in, uh, there may be tasks that even, you know, as someone who's the Crestron programming side um, could take ownership of and, and help work through the development of as far as you know how things linked in all together especially if there are legacy systems being considered uh any number of things there so that's really the next step is in terms of what we've defined um then if we're working with a software developer and we have a list of all right these drivers are going to be developed for this project and this type of custom functionality um, we do most of our work through well, really all of our work through Git, you know, through version control. So no matter what it is, um, the next step there with the developer would be to share resources with them um, and, you know, be the the guide rails in, in their support to whatever part of the project they had taken on along with us um, on their way to becoming a trusted consultant. And uh, that's essentially our, uh, you know, program of uh, certification, if you will, uh, but it's going through the process to where we can actually put a project in your hands from the beginning and know that you would be able to answer that entire train of thought uh, and also have access to our engineering department as you needed it to say, hey, here's a request I'm getting. And that's actually, we haven't seen that before. So let's talk about it. And you know, that's what we provide.
0: I think that's pretty cool. That kind of flexibility and customization—it's not only in the platform; it's also built into the way that that you're offering the service as well. So, even if I don't have any software skills on staff, I could rely on you for that. Or if I do, then um, then you're flexible in that way. So uh, that's that's a pretty interesting approach for sure, and um, is probably influenced by your software background and even using things like uh, Git just to exchange information is also um, I love the sound of that because uh, dealing with Dropbox or even emailing files is it gets to be a headache really quickly. So having that, that one place where everything, a repository where everything is always up to date uh, makes, makes your life a lot easier.
2: Yeah, I I think that that subject by itself is something that um, is maybe worthy of its own conversation, even on this podcast in the sense that, um, version control practices. Um, when I first got into this business, I wasn't familiar with them. I didn't realize, um, how far along that those practices had already been developed in other software industries. And that's kind of, uh, true of many things in AV in the sense that, um, what we experience in our, uh, evolution as an industry has, has already been experienced in other industries like for instance, IT, uh, six to six to ten years before uh, we've experienced it. Um, and that includes even uh, developing solutions around certain pro- problems. And version control itself is one of those things where if you, as a programmer, find yourself trying to figure out naming schemes and folder schemes for files so that you don't lose track of which version you used for which particular purpose, then what you really need to be looking at is a version control system. and. By its nature, Control Envy, because it uses uh, languages that are already um, uh, well-established within version control systems, such as JavaScript and uh, C-sharp, you can make use of things like diffing your files where you can see a line-by-line difference without having to do renames, and even being able to check that a version history so you can see a timeline of every change you've made and when you may have deployed that change to a site, so that if you ever have to go back and reference a project that you may have touched six months ago, there's that track record, there's that audit trail history that helps you as a developer as much as it helps anybody else. And it it can happen within a system that's built to handle those kinds of changes instead of just Dropbox or your own file versioning system. So um, th- those kinds of practices are in a lot of ways new to AV programmers, and yet the the nice thing is there's a lot of prior art to refer to uh, to really take yourself to the next level.
0: Yeah, it's it's all been done before. There's no reason to reinvent the wheel, and um, that's one of the knock on effects of open source is you're kind of motivated to uh, to use these these technologies and best practices just to make your code better and more manageable, and it it just makes sense. So. Wes, you mentioned the Raspberry Pi before. Obviously, Crestron would probably be done in Simple Sharp, and I'm sure you have hooks into uh, using Simple Windows with that. But if you were to deploy control M on a Raspberry Pi, for example, what, what programming language would you need to have the skills in to, um, to do that if you wanted to do the programming yourself? Uh, primarily JavaScript. It is JavaScript okay so for like your typical AV programmer what would you recommend they do to start transitioning into uh, yeah into JavaScript I guess code Academy code it's Academy
2: free.
0: yeah I mean
2: there's there's a lot of tools out there the even things such as our um, uh, alerts uh, language is uh, written within JavaScript uh, snippets And uh, during the beta days of Control Envy, I uh, was participating as a project manager external to the team and using it to solve some of my own problems. And and I was amazed by the fact that the the JavaScript syntax was really powerful. I wasn't a JavaScript programmer at the time, but because there's such an open community of JavaScript um, on the web, I was able to think about my problem and go out and find a snippet of code uh, that was recorded in, like, I think it was W3C's standard. Yeah. And drop it into what I was trying to accomplish with my alerts. And it was uh, the search to completion was a course of probably 15 minutes. Yeah. And uh, it, it's really amazing to realize how much prior art there is out there that Google is really your friend and a lot of these online courses are your friend in such a way that you could never have accomplished the same thing with such speed. If you had a much more limited uh, set of resources available to you, like, for instance, a closed forum that may, maybe only has, what, 500 members uh, because of the, the limitations of a particular manufacturer and, and how they release their SDK, those things just are problems that are solved um, by having
0: open source communities. I'm really glad you brought that up because obviously it's a it's a huge problem. You know, the the community is small and it's relatively closed. Some people aren't open to sharing what they've learned that much. And when you get into more web-based technologies, the mindset is completely different. And I remember hearing an interview with uh, the one of the main developers or first developers of JavaScript, and he was saying that the whole intention of the language was for it to be quickly shared and copied to help people just do stuff. So your example there of you wanted to do something, you copied it and pasted it into your code and it just kind of worked is really a a great example of the power of of that, of open programming, open source programming. So if anybody's afraid of JavaScript, don't be, get out there and start Googling and just try it. I think you'll be surprised at how approachable it is. So- Would you have any advice for integrators that are more interested, that are interested in moving towards a more service-based model, using things like the Raspberry Pi, getting away from uh, the old black box paradigm? Well,
2: I would say, first of all, try to involve yourself in conversations with end users as much as possible. It's less about the solutions and more about the outcomes. Or I guess that is the solution, but it's it's more about the solution, less about the individual components. And when you start thinking in that context, you can consider all systems of any, any manufacturer as simply a tool in your box instead of something that you are beholden to. I used to have a saying back in the earlier days of control systems before we went this open source route that, that many times control systems actually control people instead of <laughs> being a method of controlling. So if you think about it, um, your project is constrained by the limitations that are set by the technology within one manufacturer, but it's not just the project, it's all of the businesses involved. Who are your programmers? They have to have a specific skill set. Who are your integrators? They have to have specific relationships. That entire recipe doesn't necessarily have your the end user's best interest in mind. So... To be an effective integrator and consultant, no matter w- which technologies you're using, get above the surface of all of that. Focus on what the actual outcomes are and then choose your tools based on those instead of being tied down into one box. Um, so that would be my advice is to, it's more of a mindset change than it is necessarily a hard skill.
0: Great stuff. Wes, do you have anything to, uh, you'd like to add to that?
1: I was thinking of in a few directions while, while you were talking there, but I I think that, I mean, that pretty well, I think covers It's just really keep an open mind to it. And it's right to be skeptical of new um, at at the level and the stake of, you know, what a lot of the projects that, you know, we're all involved in are. Um, So that's one that we completely understand. And I think it's, you know, talking to people, talking to IT departments, you know, and not in a confrontational way, but just in, um, trying to better understand, all right, well, if, if we were able to modify this in a certain way, then it would look like a good solution to you. And, um, you know, that's, that's really it. I mean, there's, there's obviously, like you said, a lot of change. We we're coming from a place where you picked one manufacturer and that was, that was pretty much it you know, in terms of how how you were going to get to the finish line of your project. And there's a lot of different ways now.
0: Absolutely. Great stuff, guys. If anybody would like to get in touch with you, learn more about Control Envy, how would they go about doing that?
1: Controlenvy.com is a good starting point. Uh, we've got a contact form there where you can uh, give us some information, just a little bit on your background. And uh, if you'd like to see a demo and you know, what, what market you work in and all of that. So we can get just a little information and follow up with you uh, immediately. And then we've, you know, like I said, we've got a solutions group that can actually put a project into action. Um, If you, if you think it's, it's going to be something good for your project, or if it's something that you want, you would want to put in front of them and uh, get, get your hands on, on a demo or something that you could actually take in and test the waters with. So I would say, yeah, starting at the website, and we can go from
0: there. So one thing, the cool thing about that contact form is that it's the same thing as the user interface for Control Envy, is it not? Oh,
1: gotcha. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it does. It, that's a really interesting point. But yes, uh, fundamentally, a lot of the same web widgets and HTML5 things that we tie in from the app. And that's really cool that you picked up on that, because to me, it it hasn't gotten to that point yet, but our long-term goal with the website is to include interactivity from these various HTML5 components and things inside the interface because, uh, I mean, that
2: that's what it's built for, right? In, uh, in a short answer, yes. The control and uh, the
0: contact us form is actually built with our own tools. Yeah, nice way for people to uh, get a little taste and feel of it. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Look forward to it again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Hey, this is Patrick again. We talked about a lot of great stuff on this episode, like open source and version control and how to know when you need it, which is probably all the time. And we talked about the Raspberry Pi and JavaScript and how solutions like Control Envy use JavaScript. So if you want to program them, you're gonna have to learn how to do that. And Nick mentioned some great resources like Code Academy. And I really encourage you to get out there, Google around, and find some information and just give it a try. Set aside an hour a week or 45 minutes a day, whatever it is, put it in your calendar. Start really simple and small. Open up a telnet connection to a display or some kind of AV device and start sending some commands over to it. And there's plenty of information on the internet to get you started. If you have a hard time getting up and running with, JavaScript, I recommend checking out Node-RED. It's a drag-and-drop editor from IBM. It's completely open source and free, and they developed it to control the IoT, to make it easy to control devices, which is exactly what we need. They make it super simple to make TCP connections, HTTP requests, and some more advanced stuff as well. And then you create your strings in JavaScript and send them off to your devices. It's a great way to have some early wins. So check that out. And when you're ready to really use this stuff in a project and get into infrared control, serial relays, all those things we need to deal with, writing device drivers, saving stuff to a database, running reports, check out my courses at learnavprogramming.com because it will save you a bunch of time. I've been through it. I went through all of the forums. I've Googled my butt off. I've searched and searched and tested and tested. And now I have a system where I could use these things on real projects. And I documented it all in the courses at learnnavyprogramming.com So there's no reason that you have to go through all of that again. Now, these courses aren't exactly cheap, but they will save you a bunch of time. And I think you'll wind up using them as a resource as well. It's not the kind of thing where you just go through the courses and that's it. I find myself going back to the lessons over and over again when I forget how to do something, when I just need a reference, what were the steps to get from A to B. I go back to the course, search on the table of contents, find exactly what I need, and then I'm back up and running again. So that investment will be a time saver on and on into the future. And if you go to learnavprogramming.com, anywhere you see a sign up box, go ahead and sign up and I'll send you some free information to get you started. And then you'll get a little bit of a feel of my teaching style and you'll be able to see if things are for you or not. All right. So get out there, get started, give it a try, and let's bring this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.